For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Come thou long-expected Jesus, to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release Let us find our rest in Thee Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth Thou art Dear desire of every nation Joy of every longing heart You know the song, sing with us. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom
Good morning, church family, and what a great day to be in the house of God following Thanksgiving weekend and some kind of game that happened last night. Uh, no excuses sleeping through the sermon today because the preacher was up just as long as you were last night. But if you're our guest today, we welcome you, and we're so glad to have you. And uh, if you would take a moment to complete the connection card that's found in your worship guide, we'd love to have a record of your visit. Also, uh, be sure to share with us any prayer requests that you have. We'll, select, we'll collect those at the end of the service today. And if you are one of our first-time guests, I'd love to meet you at the back table just right outside these doors and give you a copy of my book, Free, uh, The Privilege of Worship. We want that to be our gift to you today for joining us for worship. We have such a great uh, series of weeks coming up very soon with our Christmas season coming up. You heard just a piece of that uh, this morning. That piece this morning was from uh, a night of worship that we're going to have December 9th, which is called The King is Here. And you're going to want to be here for that. But that's just the second of three weeks worth of great music that we're going to be having on Sunday nights. The Hanging of the Green will be next Sunday night, December 2nd. You'll want to be here for that. Then December 9th is what you heard uh, this morning, uh, the night of worship, the King of Here. And then the, the 16th of December is our Christmas musical, Jesus, the Advent of the Messiah. So mark out Sunday nights until Christmas. It's going to be a great time of worship together. There's something for every generation. So make plans now to join us. Uh, last week in uh, Sunday school, you received a copy of our 2019 proposed budget. And I wanted to share just a little bit with you about that budget this morning so that you could be prepared tonight for our budget discussion and question and answer time. Uh, at 6 o'clock over in the chapel, I hope that you'll join us for that special time of looking into next year's budget. While there are 11 different categories in our budget, it's easier to talk about just four major categories and to see those on the slide that's coming up here just to see how things break down. Uh, the grand total for next year's budget is $1,000,000. 
$593,250. That is an increase of $136,000 over this year's budget. Now, if you've been paying attention the last few weeks, you say, hmm, that's interesting because aren't we working hard right now to pay and make sure we meet this year's budget? And that is the case. We're in the midst of our 10 and 10 challenge to make our 2018 budget. And what we're doing is we're taking our tithe and adding 10% on top of that so that we can try to meet budget. And that means, some people said, does that mean we like tithe twice? Good Lord, no. No, no, that's not what we're asking you to do. Just 10% on top. So if you give $100, you give 110. If you give 500, you give 550. Just that little bit extra, and that's going quite well. I don't know what anybody gives, uh, but I can see what the total giving is. And so what I can tell you, I can't tell you how many people are participating. All I can say is, in the first four weeks of the campaign, we have given $135,568, and that's $42,340 more than we gave the previous four weeks. So that tells me we're doing the work to give a little bit extra. So thank you, church. We're always generous to meet needs and achieve vision because we know it's important to do so. If God calls us to do something, we need to make sure that it happens. So we're hopeful that we can push forward in 2019 with some new things. The 2019 budget will be the largest budget in our church's history. Now, that's something to celebrate because it means that we have finally grown past the point where the church was about 16 years ago before experiencing six years of decline followed by the lowest point in our history in 2006. It's taken a long time to dig out of that hole, but we are there if we meet and achieve next year's budget. So that's pretty exciting. And hopefully going from this point onward, Till Jesus comes back, every year will be the greatest budget in the church's history because we'll keep on building and keep on reaching people for Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. Our, our increases next year fall into basically three areas. The first is our, our cooperative program giving, our missions giving. We, we've been on a track to increase that to 10% by 2020. So this next year, we're increasing to 9.5%, trying to get that on up there. And we've been making steady progress on that from about 2 or 3% many years ago on up to 95 now. And all of that while we've been renovating, adding staff, expanding ministry. So we're doing a great job on that. And the cooperative program is vital because that is our major missions arm. You know, we couldn't support even one missionary effectively as a church family, but through the cooperative program, we support something like 10,000 missionaries in Louisiana, North America, and the world. But in addition to that, we support things like disaster relief all over the world. We support Louisiana College, uh, children's homes, six seminaries, and on and on and on it goes in an amazing ministry outreach. And so I hope that you'll support our increase with the cooperative program. The second section that's really increasing is our uh, ministry of facilities. And that is because we have uh, our entire debt payment on our renovations in next year's budget. So what we want to do next year is to start making our payment through the budget so that whatever else we give to our building fund goes towards principal. 
12% of next year's budget is just debt retirement to kind of get an idea of how much that is. It's about $16,400 a month. And so that's a big chunk of money, but that's because we did a lot of renovations. And we want to keep paying that down. And so the Finance Committee has a plan that when we are able to start doing that, making that payment through our budget, we will start making that payment, and that will help us to start driving down that debt. The third uh, section that's going to see increase is we need to hire some new staff. We've had interims or supply in both of our, our minister of music and student minister situations for about a year and a half now, and we want to make those steps to fill those staff positions uh, this next year. And um, if they uh, do what they should do, the old rule of thumb is, is that a new staff member will pay for themselves in about two years. As they help reach about 10 to 12 tithing families, their salary and most of their ministry will be paid for. And so the problem is as a church, or the challenge as a church is, we have to make the faith step to get the staff here so that they can then help us to reach those new families. God continues to encourage me with the things he's doing in our church through baptisms, through new members joining, through guests each week, through several new ministries that he's allowed us to launch this year. And so we want to keep pressing on into 2019, and I hope that you'll join Rebecca and me in giving generously so that we can achieve everything God is calling us to do. This is a joyful season that we get to rejoice in. It's a season of giving. It's a season of celebrating. So as we continue in worship this morning, celebrate the joy of the Lord today. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Would you stand together and sing this great song of the season? Let's worship together. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee.
Aren't you grateful for that word today? That's what the next several weeks are all about. We want to have a time of prayer to prepare our hearts as we get ready for this Christmas season. If you can, on the ground floor, if you join me in kneeling, and those of you in the balcony, you stay in your seats or kneel in the aisles. But let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning, preparing our hearts to really focus on Emmanuel this Christmas season. Gracious Father, we come before you and we thank you that 2,000 years ago, your plan was accomplished. Lord, from the beginning of time when sin entered the world, you said there's coming a time when Satan may think that he struck a heel, but I'm going to crush his head. And so, Lord, we thank you that that plan unfolded through the ages, and finally, 2,000 years ago, the baby was born in Bethlehem. You stepped down to make us great. You made a way where there seemed to be no way for us to pay the sin debt that was ours to reconcile us and you back together and to deal ultimately with Satan and the curse of sin and death forever. We thank you, God, for being victorious. We thank you for humbling yourself and being made like one of us. We thank you that we do not have a priest who has not been where we are, but one who has been tested in every way who knows exactly what it's like to live as a human, to face temptation, yet you were able to be without sin, to live in relationship with the Heavenly Father, and to make a way for our salvation. We give you praise for this, Lord. As we go through this Christmas season, may we not miss the glory and magic of you. For while the things that the world throws out us are fun, the real meaning behind the story is the powerful promise was fulfilled. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Sing, O little town of Bethlehem, with us as we sing about the everlasting light of Christ. Let's stand and sing together.
Would you pray with me, please? Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're just so thankful because we're in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, Father. We, we in between where we need to give thanks for how awesome you've blessed us and in your mighty ways and for what you've done for us, Father. And then how awesome it is to celebrate the birth of your, your precious child, Jesus Christ, who died on the Christ for everyone's sins here today, Father. And I'm so thankful for that. I pray, Father, that you'd be with us in this service. I pray for Brother Stewart as he brings forth the message that you've put in his heart to bring, Father, as you speak through him, that souls will be saved this day. And we pray, Father, as we give back to you, as you have given to us, that we would be generous in that giving, Father. We thank you and we love you for all you've done for us. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Christmas season is here. Isn't that wonderful? After having a great Thanksgiving on Thursday, Rebecca and the boys and I spent Friday decorating the Holloway Holiday Home. And uh, I always love decorating for Christmas once we get the tree up. I don't mind decorating the tree, it's getting the tree up. Up. I've shared about that before. If we make it past that, then we're good. 
And decorating then the rest of the house always gets me in the mood. And it's so much fun with Zach right now being uh, nine, almost ten. And he's wanting to do more and more himself and wanting to help and add more and more lights outside. I think by the time he's a teenager, we'll be the Griswolds on Pinewood Avenue. But uh, we're, we're slowly getting there a little bit at a time. But it's, it's a wonderful time. And so this weekend... I began reading one of my favorite Christmas stories, and that is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And I just love that story. And Dickens is famous, of course, for his Ebenezer Scrooge, who hears of Christmas and says, Bah, humbug. I want to remind you of Scrooge a little bit this morning. Watch this clip that's classic movie. Merry Christmas, Uncle. I said, Merry Christmas, Uncle. Humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle. Surely you don't mean that. I do. What's Christmas? But a time for buying things for which you have no need, no money. Time for finding yourself a year older, not an hour richer. <laughs> if I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips <laughs> should be boiled in his own pudding <laughs> and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. <laughs> Come now, Uncle. Neville, you keep Christmas in your way and let me keep it in mine. Hmm. Christmas. A humbug. You know, we've heard that line so much that uh, we think it's some kind of 1800s expletive, but it's really not. The word humbug is, means it's something designed to deceive. And that was Scrooge's problem with Christmas. He felt it was misleading. Scrooge saw nothing but selfishness in Christmas. He felt that's why Bob Cratchit wanted the day off. That's why people were trying to raise money for the poor. That's why everyone went around with such jolly spirits, because it was all about them. So selfish, miserly Scrooge says, you keep it in your way, I'll keep it in mine. We might update Scrooge's speech to say, Merry Christmas, bah humbug, Merry Mimas, I say. While selfishness, was not what Bob Cratchit and others in Dickens' story were about at all. Unfortunately, that is what Christmas has become to many people. Now, they may not have the crusty character of Ebenezer Scrooge, but for them, December 25th is not Christmas, it is Mimas. What's under the tree for me? In fact, I think the more politically correct statement when we're checking out at the grocery store or at the stores would not be happy holidays, but for the checkout clerk to say, Merry Mimas. And we could say, and a Merry Mimas to you as well, because that should not offend anybody, because it's so much of what Christmas is about now. Now, I don't want to sound like some prude putting down Christmas, because I love Christmas just as much as anybody. I love the gifts. I love the food, I love the songs, I even love the chestnuts open, roasting on an open fire, though I've never had chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I am concerned, however, that we've lost much of the true magic of Christmas by being focused on ourselves. The season is called Christmas, not Mimas. That term Christmas comes from the Christ 
Mass, which was a time in the ancient church to celebrate what Jesus did. We kind of hearken back to that on Christmas Eve in our church when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Though we celebrate his birth, we remember why he was born and that he died to pay for the penalty of our sins. Unfortunately, though, when we think about Christmas, the sacrifices that we make have little to do with Jesus and really everything to do with us. Each day from Black Friday, or maybe we should call it Black Week now, to Christmas Day, we bow at the altars of sacrifice named St. Amazon and St. Wall of the Mart and a hundred others so that we might have the best Mary Mimas ever. In fact, starting at midnight tonight, you can even get in on Cyber Monday. No LSU fans are going to stay up that late tonight. We've already been there. But because of all of that, Christmas has become a humbug, a farce. But it's supposed to be a picture of humility. If we know what a humbug is, what does it mean to be humble? What is humility? Well, humility is the freedom from pride or arrogance. It is the exact opposite of a sense of entitlement. And oh my goodness, is entitlement the word of the day, especially in America? Certainly not humility. But when we look at the manger, we see humility. And unfortunately, we have made humility the least recognized trait of Christmas when it should be the greatest. As I was doing some reading in preparation for this season and kind of trying to pray through what the sermon series should be like for Christmas, I was struck by this. And the question came to mind, are you a humble or are you a humbug? Are you living out what Christmas really is all about or are you a humbug? We're going to explore this question through the next several weeks as we lead up to Christmas. And to guide us through this series, we're going to use Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 as our foundation. And I hope that you'll turn there if you haven't already. It was great. As soon as that slide popped up, several of you started turning. And that's, that's wonderful because that means we're a people of the book, right? We know where the message is going to come from. But you might say as you look at that now, Stuart, that is not a Christmas passage. No, it's not. It's a passage about Christmas, Easter, and everything in between and after. It's about all of it. And so this morning, I want to dig into Philippians 2, 5 through 11, because for the next several weeks, this passage is going to be at the background as we look at several other passages that deal with the Christmas narrative and the Christmas account. But this one's going to be at the background. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 5 and following, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul wrote this 
passage to the church at Philippi because they were experiencing some disunity. And Paul indicates that the greatest help for unity in the church is humility on the parts of the members of the church. And so for a perfect example of this, humility, Paul turns to Jesus Christ. And these verses, you'll notice they're kind of set set off probably like a poem in your copy of Scripture. And that's because they are referred to as the Christ hymn. And scholars debate whether Paul wrote this hymn for the first time here or whether this was just a popular hymn that was being sung in the early church. It really doesn't matter because what we have is a beautiful song that the early church obviously sung that celebrates the work of Jesus Christ. And this hymn is sometimes called the parabola of Scripture. Do you remember what a parabola is from math class? I know that might bring back, you know, nightmares for some of y'all, but a parabola looks like this. And so this hymn is called the parabola of Scripture because it begins with Christ in heaven, it follows him down to earth, and then it takes him right back up into heaven. Now, interestingly, though, As we're seeing the wonder of who Christ is in heaven, and we see the wonder of who Christ is exalted to become, in this picture of wonderful supremacy, we also see the humility of Christ. That he was willing to step down and become one of us so that he might bring us to heaven with him. And so this hymn begins the story of Christ up in heaven And where we see that Jesus dwelled as God in heaven. Paul says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was in very nature God or in the form of God. And this means more than mere external appearance. It means that Jesus had the exact essence of God's nature. He is God. He is equal to God. The life of Jesus did not begin in the womb of Mary. What began there was the visible manifestation of the Son of God. Jesus himself has always been. As John introduced his gospel, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is God. But Paul moves on. He says that Jesus then stepped down into life. He says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Can you imagine the scene in heaven when the father said, Son, it's time. James Montgomery Boyce uh, helps us imagine that scene in this way. He says, we must imagine that something like rumors of Christ's descent to earth had been in circulation around heaven and that for weeks the angels had been contemplating the form in which Christ would enter human history. Would he appear in a blaze of light, bursting into the night of the Palestinian countryside, dazzling all who beheld him? Perhaps he would appear as a mighty general marching into pagan Rome, Perhaps he would come as the wisest of Greek philosophers, putting the wisdom of Plato and Socrates to foolishness. 
But what is this? There's no display of glory, no pomp, no marching of the feet of heavenly legions. Instead, Christ lays his robes aside. The glory that was his from eternity, he steps down from the heavenly throne and becomes a baby in the arms of a mother in a far eastern colony of the Roman Empire. And at this display of divine condescension, the angels are amazed and they burst into such a crescendo that the shepherds hear them on the hills of Bethlehem. Jesus stepped down from glory and came to us. What a sight that is. The angels themselves were thinking... How stunning, how different than we thought this would ever have been. The supreme becoming the humble. And notice the humility of Christ in the midst of supremacy there at verse 7. He made himself nothing. He stepped from deity into humanity. He laid aside the robe of the Son of God and took on the robe of of man. Chuck Swindoll writes it this way, in a state of absolute perfection and full control, Jesus willingly released it all for humanity. Encompassed by angelic hosts who praised and adore him, the Savior unselfishly came to those who cursed and crucified him. Surrounded by the Father's presence and fellowship, he unhesitantly gave it all up for a lonely path of obedience to a cross. Can you imagine one moment being in heaven, adored by the angels, the next moment being in a manger, slobbered on by cattle? What humility. Jesus set aside his treasure and took the form, the very nature of a servant. That form, very nature word there is the same one used up In verse 6, so it reminds us that Jesus is both 100% God and 100% man. And only in the incarnation can 100 plus 100 be 100. It's amazing. Paul describes this stepping down in 2 Corinthians 8 9 when he writes, Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. Think about how far he stepped down. This king, this Lord, who became a servant, he was so poor that he was constantly borrowing stuff. He had to borrow a place to be born, a house to sleep in, a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room in which to institute the Lord's Supper, and even the final tomb to be buried in. His whole life was just borrowing. And when he died, the only belonging there was for anyone to fight over was a cloak. There was no estate, there were no bank accounts, there were no houses, there were no trinkets. There was just one cloak. But not only was Jesus poor in belongings, he was poor in spirit. Because he inherited a heavy debt. It wasn't a financial debt, but it was a sin debt. The sin debt of all people of all times, including us here today. And he carried that debt to the cross where he paid for it with his life. As Jesus made the step down from the throne of heaven to the dust of earth, he emptied himself of his eternal heavenly glory. The Shekinah glory of Jesus, that is the light of heaven, was veiled. Only 
on the day of the transfiguration was that glory revealed for just a moment. For the rest of time, it was hidden. And for the very first time, the eternal Jesus was subject to place and to time and to other human limitations. God the Son was found in appearance as a man. He wasn't just pretending to be a man. He wasn't a phantom. He really was a man. Everyone who knew him knew him as a real human being, as real as ever had lived. He had been born just like them. He had grown up just like them. He learned a trade just like them. He grew hungry and thirsty and tired just like them. He grieved just like them. He rejoiced just like them. Don't be fooled by our Christmas songs. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Uh Uh-uh. Just as a normal baby cries when it's hungry or dirty, so did little Lord Jesus. As a one-month-old, Jesus did not say, "Uh, pardon me, mother, but when you get a chance, could you be ever so kind as to feed me and change my diaper? (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? No, Jesus got his mama's attention just like your children got your attention. He was a real man. Mary and Joseph had sleepless nights just like every parent has. The only thing that was different was he never sinned. And because he didn't, he was able to pay the price for our sin. Because that's where he was leading, right? This human life led Christ to the cross where Jesus humbled himself and died. In verse 8 we read, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As I thought about this, I thought, you know, even death in your sleep from old age would have been a humbling act for God. But Jesus certainly didn't die a peaceful death in his sleep, did he? He died on the cross. The cross was the most painful and the most shameful form of death. Stripped naked, beaten within an inch of life, then nailed to a cross for everybody to see, to mock, to spit upon, to laugh at. It was a gruesome scene. It was beyond a scene of humility. It was a scene of humiliation. Our paintings, our movies do not do it justice. The passion of the Christ was rated R for gruesome, and the passion of Christ didn't even come close To what it was really like for Jesus. It's a good thing. The paintings and movies don't do it justice. Because we could not handle it if they did. When you look at Jesus on that cross. You see his life pouring out for you. God at the cross was showing his love for people. And his hatred for sin. And those two great enormous Passions of God, his love for humanity and his hatred of sin came together at the cross in a great clash. And there, Jesus bore the penalty of it all. Jesus stepped from the glory of heaven to the gore of the cross for you and for me. The cross was necessary 
But thanks be to God, the cross was not the end. Because the hymn continues on that parabola as it moves up where we see that Christ stepped back into glory. In verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Early that first Easter Sunday morning, God the Father came to God the Son in the darkness of that tomb. And he said, son, it's time to get up. And Jesus woke up. God did not intend to leave Jesus dead in a tomb. No, God highly exalted him. And what does that mean? Well, first it means that God raised Jesus from the dead. A dead Jesus can't be exalted, but an alive Jesus can. And so Stuart Briscoe says when God raised Christ from the dead, he defeated all that ever defeated a human being. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to us is we die. And Jesus defeated it forever. But the resurrection was just step one because you see then Christ ascended to heaven. He went back home. And and once back home, God gave him a name that was above every name. Jesus has a name of wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's God, our Savior. He's the Lord who is, who was, and is to come. He is the door to the sheep. He is also the good shepherd. He's also a lamb without spot or blemish. And he's also the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the logos. He is the word. He's the light of the world. He's the light of life. He's the word of life. He's the bread that came down from heaven. He's the resurrection. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Us. He is the rock. He is the one who is altogether lovely. The one in whom the Father is well pleased. And yet above all of this, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the hymn ends with Christ exalted in eternity. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where it's all headed. You want to know where it's all headed? I don't know how the end of the world stuff's going to end, but I know where it's ultimately going to end, and it's right there with every knee bowing in worship. Not so bad, is it? There's coming a day when every single created being, whether for God or against God, will bow the knee and say, Yes, you are Lord. The angels and believers will declare, Jesus is the Lord. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for glory and worship. The demons and those who have rejected Christ in their life will declare, Jesus is Lord in misery, wishing they had bowed in repentance and faith when they had the chance. When I was a teenager, the song, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High, was popular. And it said, you came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. That simple chorus was 
the parabola of Scripture. It was the parabola of what God did. That song did what this song of Paul's did in its day. From heaven to earth and back to heaven again. Jesus humbling himself to be one of us, to make a way for us so that we might be saved. And then being exalted and raised to life so that he might reign forever and ever. You know, friends, it is impossible to have a merry Mimas if you think about the humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Because in fact, you'll find yourself wanting to remove the me factor really fast and replace it with the name that is above every name, the name that's already there in the name of the holiday to begin with, Merry Christmas. May that be true of us for the next several weeks as we go into this Christmas season. And may we celebrate him who was and is and is to come. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us of the wonders of what you did for us. We ask God that you would come into our hearts today. Lord, for those in this room who've never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, I pray God that you would speak to them right now and draw them to yourself. Don't let them be at the judgment one day saying, I wish I had believed when I had the chance. Lord, for those of us who are believers, may you be first in our life. Lord, for you must be in every area. And so, God, we give you ourselves right now. And we seek your face during this time of invitation and response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.